right, welcome to the show. We're back. Mm-hmm. Back from the Victorian era. They were a strange crew. Yeah. I think they've all been pretty strange up until this point. I know, I know, but the Victorians, they they had a couple of couple of uh, uh, standout moments. Yeah, they were especially strange. Uh, I want to thank our sponsor, Bits and Bits. <clears throat> Check out Bits and Bits for all your uh, router bit needs, your CNC tooling needs. Um, they have bits from one thirty second to half inch depth of cut. Or width, you know, a diameter cut, I should say. Um, they're manufacturing spiral bits. They have their own templating bits. We're a big fan of the uh, the quarter inch diameter, you know, bearing guided uh, flush trim bits. Yeah, we use that all the time. They're uh, the only authorized reseller of white side router bits with their Astro coating, which is a, a proprietary coating that um, extends the life of the bit, keeps things nice and cool. Um, sort of like a non-stick kind of coating. Yeah, it actually works. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to support the podcast, go on over to Bits and Bits, use the code American Craftsman, save 15% on your router bits, and uh, yeah, support another small United States business. They're quick shippers too. Yeah. So let's uh, let's get into the show. We're on to the arts and crafts period this week. Episode 30. Yeah. Wow. Pretty huh? crazy. So, as usual, we start with uh, who, what, where, why, when, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. uh, general information. And um, even though we kind of think we know a lot about the arts and crafts movement and stuff like that, there's, there's still so much to learn. We learn a lot as we're, you know, compiling this information. Oh, yeah. And for me, the thing that I learned the most uh, not learn the most. What, what's the better way to say it? The thing that struck me the most was how much earlier the arts and crafts period started when it was in England. Mm-hmm. And we kind of think of the American arts and crafts movement. Yeah, we're thinking of like the <clears throat> the tens, nineteen tens, right. kind of in the um, U.S. But the ideas that would become the arts and crafts movement began forming in England in the mid eighteen hundreds. Alongside and in response to the Victorian era and the Industrial Revolution. Contemporary rebels. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we kind of sensed it all along as we were going through these periods and, yeah. and learning about how industrialization and 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 those uh, side effects were affecting, you know, our industry. What was what would become our industry? And the term uh, arts and crafts was first used in 1887 at a meeting of the Arts and Crafts Exhibition Society. Hmm. So who were the, the guiding forces in this? Um, it was inspired by the principles, styles, and thoughts of architect um, Auguste Pougin. Uh, if I mangled his name, I'm sorry. Hey, Pougin. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, John Ruskin, who people have probably heard of, mm-hmm. designer William Morris, of course, and in Scotland by Charles Mackintosh. Oh, with a K, Mackintosh with a K. Yeah, yeah. We'll discuss the American craftsmen who followed in coming episodes. So why? Why did the arts and crafts movement come about? Uh, it was about uh, design reform. It It emerges from the attempt to reform design and mm-hmm. decoration in mid-19th century Britain. Um, it's a reaction against a perceived decline in standards. Um, and this was associated with machinery and factory production. Yeah, not just a perceived decline, but a real <laughs> decline. Yeah. It, it's, you know, you see all these parallels to today, don't you? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, their critique was sharpened by the items they saw at the Great Exhibition of 1851, uh, which they considered to be excessively ornate, artificial, and ignorant of the qualities of the materials used. Hmm. I love that last phrase. Sounds like our trip to KBIS in 2019. <laughs> right? But ignorant of the qualities of the materials <laughs> used. That That's something that... It may have started then, but it sure does pervade um, 
all things today. Yeah. Um, if you guys don't know about the great exhibition of 1851, um, a quick Google search will, will bring it up. It, it was sort of like a, almost like a world's fairy kind of thing. Um, had all kinds of exhibits from science to, you know, home goods and things like that. But, um, it happened basically in the middle of the Victorian period. Yeah. I think, did we talk about it? In we one did of a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Um, I, I found it's referenced now that I know about it. I, I hear it referenced a lot more than mm -hmm. I did in the past. You know, like when you notice something oh, yeah. all of a sudden. Um, well, back to our story. Art historian Nicholas Pevsner writes that the exhibit showed ignorance of that basic need in creating patterns, the integrity of the surface, as well as displaying, and get this, vulgarity in detail. Hmm. Um, so a lot of criticism, even contemporary criticism of, of those uh, things. And yeah. This is where the seeds of the arts and crafts movement are born. Design reform began with exhibition organizers Henry Cole, Owen Jones, Matthew Digby Watt, and Richard Redgrave. This is all in the mid to late 1800s, all of whom deprecated excessive ornament and impractical or badly made things. Justly so. Yeah. The organizers were unanimous in their condemnation of the exhibits. So a uh, bunch of guys who were in the field go to this exhibition of 1851 and they're horrified. <laughs> <laughs> Owen Jones, for example, complained that the architect, the upholsterer, the paper stainer, the weaver, the calico printer, and the potter produced Novelty without beauty or beauty without intelligence. Wow. From these criticisms of manufactured goods emerged several publications which set out what the writers considered to be the correct principles of design. Hmm. Richard Redgrave's supplementary report on design in 1852 analyzed the principles of design and ornament and pleaded for more logic in the application of decoration. It's no wonder we identify with this uh, period because yeah, they're about as opinionated as us. Or, or I should say we're about as opinionated as they, as are. they are. Yeah, that's what cracks me up. It's like they really use some scathing language. Um, other works followed in a similar vein, such as Wyatt's Industrial Arts of the 19th Century, uh, published in 1853, Gottfried Semper's Wissenschaft, industry, mm -hmm. and Kunst, that's science, industry, and art, uh, 1852, Ralph Wernham's Analysis of Ornament, Redgrave's Manual of Design, and Jones's Grammar of Ornament, all these from the 1850s. Um, and if you, you know, get a copy of uh, our notes, all these things are, are in there. And Although the books are, it could be a difficult read, we've gotten a couple of them. We've pulled, we have the gentleman and directors, uh, cabinet maker directory or whatever. I can't remember. Gentleman and cabinet makers director. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We have the one that was printed in Italian. Yeah. Uh, four books of. Of architecture. Yeah, something like that. Um, and I've, I, I read that one. It's a lot of great scale drawings and mm -hmm. things like that. There's little kernels to pick up and apply to everything we do today. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting to me that the investment, uh, the emotional investment that is created as a reaction to the, um, you know, heavy ornamentation and badly made things. Mm -hmm. Um, today we're more about, I Think complaining sort of <laughs> where these guys are like we're going to do something about it right and which is pretty cool um the grammar of ornament uh the book was particularly influential 
liberally distributed as a student prize and running into nine reprints by 1910. Uh, Jones declared that ornament must be secondary to the thing decorated. Uh, good sense there. That there must be fitness in the ornament to the thing ornamented. And that wallpapers and carpets must not have any patterns suggestive of anything but a level or plane. Um, plane being A-I-N. I'm not sure what that... Like a plane, like a great plains yeah. plane? Um, so these things are really starting to guide up-and-coming uh, designers from everything to furniture. You know, we don't think of it so much uh, nowadays. We're kind of separated, like when we work with a designer, they kind of do the room decoration, but there were guys, they did the whole thing back yeah. then. A fabric or wallpaper in the great exhibition might be decorated with a natural motif made to look as real as possible. Whereas these writers advocated flat and simplified natural motifs. I could see that. Um, yeah. you start getting into like the Frank Lloyd Wright Prairie school and things. Mm -hmm. Um, Redgrave insisted that style demanded sound construction before ornamentation and a proper awareness of the quality of materials used. Utility must have precedence over ornamentation. All right, we're, we're starting to see a little bit of um, shakerism there. Yeah. But um, not quite as uh, drastic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we talk about, you know, the idea of like, you know, guys covering up a crappy door with a thick coat of shiny paint. You know, it's right. kind of the same idea. <laughs> right. You know, that that's a great example. Like those hollow core doors that they, you know, sell at the big box stores with the mm -hmm. fake wood grain and things like that. Um, Yeah, that that's it. A solid MDF door with thermofoil. Mm-hmm. Well, the design reformers of the mid-19th century did not go as far as the designers of the arts and crafts movement. They were more concerned with ornamentation than construction. They had an incomplete understanding of methods of manufacture, and they did not criticize industrial methods as such. Okay, so they noted it, but they didn't really get too deeply into the construction of the furniture. They just mm -hmm. said this stuff is crap, but they didn't get too deep into it. By contrast, the arts and crafts movement was as much a movement of social reform as design reform, and its leading practitioners did not separate the two. Yeah. Why? Because it's a critique of industry. Um, the arts and crafts philosophy was derived in large measure from John Ruskin's social criticism, uh, which related the moral and social health of a nation to the qualities of of its architecture and to the nature of its work. You can kind of see that. Yeah. Um, you know, books like uh, 1984 and a lot of dystopian kind of books, they, they always show sort of, you know, a degraded society with degraded material things and products. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> think of like... Uh these like Eastern Bloc countries mm -hmm. and the architecture, you know, during the time of like Soviet, uh, not occupation, but of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, and not, who was it? Was it Stalin or Lenin who had actually kind of like a, a, a real architectural style that was actually kind of nice, but talk, we're talking like 70s, 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s sort of architecture. Very drab, mm -hmm. flat, cold, um, oh yeah. Cinder blocks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Ruskin, he considered the sort of mechanized production and division of labor that had been created in the industrial revolution to be servile labor. And he thought that a healthy and moral society required independent workers who designed the things that they made. You know, we got to like Ruskin because yeah. he's he's right in our wheelhouse. He believed factory-made works to be dishonest and that handwork and craftsmanship 
merge dignity with labor. I can see where he's coming from. Of course, you know, in our day and age, there's a place for factory-made goods and yeah. components and things like that. Um, but in general, we're we're on board with that. Ruskin's followers favored craft production over industrial manufacture and were concerned about the loss of traditional skills. But they were more troubled by the effects of the factory system than by machinery itself. Mm. Yeah, yeah, good point. William Morris's idea of handicraft was essentially work without any division of labor rather than work without any sort of machinery. That's kind of us. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're big with machines, of course. William Morris shared Ruskin's critique of industrial society and at one time or another attacked the modern factory, uh, the use of machinery, the division of labor, capitalism, and the loss of traditional craft methods. But his attitude to machinery was inconsistent. Uh, we're speaking of Morris. He said at one point that production by machinery was altogether an evil. But at other times, he was willing to commission work from manufacturers who were able to meet his standards with the aid of machines. Hmm, maybe a little bit of a changing of opinion going on. Yeah, and you got to figure this is a a, a big um, pivot point in society. As people are using machines, getting used to the idea of machines and factories. Right. Where, you know... We grew up with it. It's it's part of our our vocabulary. Yeah, and you know, uh, existing in a time where you see a correlation between industrialization and the degradation of society. Yeah, you start to associate the machinery as a as a um, a cause of it. Mm -hmm. So I could see why you might, you know, initially oh, be yeah. completely against it. Definitely, definitely. Morris said that in a true society where neither luxuries nor cheap trash were made. <laughs> Machinery could be improved and used to reduce the hours of labor. Right. Yeah. So Morris had no practical objections to the use of machinery so long as the machines produced the quality he needed. Morris insisted that the artist should be a craftsman designing designer working by hand, and he advocated a society of free craftspeople such as he believed had existed during the Middle Ages. Well, that's probably some rose-colored glasses there. Yeah. And they had it good back then in the Middle Ages. Yeah. I know. That, that's, that's kind of the way it goes, though, doesn't it? The good old days. That's like my wife will say something like, you know, I wish I lived in the Victorian times. Like the hair and the fashion was just so... I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah. You wouldn't survive a day. You're lucky if you had indoor plumbing. Yeah, you catch the bubonic plague. Well, I guess that was before yeah. that, but... Gas yeah. lights. Got, uh, everybody's got lice. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's easy to romanticize those things. Yeah. And that sounds like that's what Morris is doing here when he's hearkening back to medieval times. Um, because craftsmen took pleasure in their work, he wrote. The Middle Ages was a period of greatness in the art of the common people. The treasures in our museums now are only the common utensils used in households of that age. When hundreds of medieval churches, each one a masterpiece, were built by unsophisticated peasants. I mean, he's got a point there, yeah. but but uh, let's not. Uh, yeah, <laughs> people toiled, yeah. man. Peasants is the key word there. Yeah, yeah. Medieval art was the model for much of arts and crafts design. Uh, you see that a lot in like the wallpaper and and all that kind of stuff. And medieval life, literature, and building was idealized by the movement. Yeah, in, yes, indeed. Morris and his followers believed the division of labor on which modern industry depended was undesirable, but the extent to which every design should be carried out by the designer was a matter for debate and disagreement. Not all arts and crafts artists carried out every stage in the making of goods themselves, and it was only in the 20th century 
that that became essential to the definition of craftsmanship. Hmm. Although Morris was famous for getting hands-on experience himself of many crafts, including weaving, dyeing, printing, calligraphy, and embroidery, he did not regard the separation of designer and craftsman in his factory as problematic. Hmm. Um, we're, we're, we're close to that, but we're not, you know, like we need fabric upholstery. We reach out. We've done some of that, but we prefer to go to the experts when we're. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's hard, um, to try and do all that stuff yourself and, and make money. That's the problem. Right. Right. Because we have to learn, uh, and you know, so a lot of times it's cheaper than to, to hire out the pro mm -hmm. and learn to, to be really good at it right. and get paid. Um, unlike their counterparts in the United States, most arts and crafts practitioners in Britain had strong, slightly incoherent, negative feelings about machinery. They thought of the craftsman as free, creative, and working with his hands. The machine, uh, by contrast, was soulless, repetitive, and inhuman. Uh, these contrasting images derive in part from John Ruskin's The Stones of Venice, an architectural history of Venice that contains a powerful denunciation of modern industrialism uh, to which the arts and crafts designers returned again and again. Distrust for the machine lay behind the many little workshops that turned their backs on the industrial world around 1900, using pre-industrial techniques to create what they called crafts. Hmm. It's interesting yeah. um, to see the, 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 the intermingling of the social aspects with what we just kind of think of as as work in a way. Mm -hmm. However, in time, the English arts and crafts movement came to stress craftsmanship at the expense of mass market pricing. The result was exquisitely made and decorated pieces that could only be afforded by the very wealthy. <laughs> Thus, the idea of art for the people was lost and only relatively few craftsmen could be employed making these fine pieces. There you go. Um, yeah, I mean, that's in stark contrast to, like, the American arts and crafts movement. Right. It, it became this sort of elite thing. Yeah. Uh, that you had to pay a craftsman to work slowly by hand, and then who could afford it? We balance that act all the time. Yeah, we try. Um, <laughs> and that's where things like machine-made things and... Um, you know, machinery itself helps us balance what's affordable to more than just the elite. Yeah. And helps us stay in business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the old uh, value engineering. Yeah, I hate that phrase, but... Mm, yeah. <clears throat> so, what are the characteristics of the arts and crafts movement? Um, it's characterized by its rejection of the dehumanization of design. Arts and crafts works have a down-to-earth quality that are more personalized and reflective of their surroundings. It's funny, they um, relate all the ornamentation as a dehumanization. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I could see the, the mass uh, manufacture and the separation of, um, you know, the jobs where one guy's making this little rosette all day long and there's somebody over there applying it, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, but the rejection of the dehumanization of design, I guess, um, again, they're more concerned with how it looks than the American arts and crafts movement where we start getting into how it's made. Right. Um, the arts and crafts style permeated multiple fields from architecture to textiles to jewelry. Excuse me. It made a big impact on furniture, of course. This was especially true in the U.S., largely due to the work and writings of furniture designer Gustav Stickley. Uh, you heard of him? My man. <laughs> Let's take a quick look 
at the different qualities of arts and crafts furniture. Um, structural integrity is a biggie. Excellent craftsmanship, ideally completed by hand. Uh, it's These are the hallmarks of the arts and crafts movement, which praise sturdy construction. Uh, rectilinear forms. Though the movement drew from nature, curved forms were better left to textile designs. Arts and crafts furniture is all about straight lines and proportion. Yeah. This is something that always drives me wild. I mean, thank goodness I was attracted to arts and crafts like most people in our line of work. Yeah. Uh, you, you're right. I mean, some people are classicists, but... It's hard. I haven't met anybody who doesn't at least uh, have a nodding to it. Yeah, I think a lot of guys. I mean, at least in in cabinetry, have they don't know anything about anybody really? <laughs> no, I mean more like people like us who are making well, yeah. their, making furniture, you know, and yeah. designing it. Proportion is so key. It, it it ruins or makes every single design. Yeah, and and. As we've been going through, as you've been going through these design changes, yeah, um, with Nancy, you could see how the proportion is really it makes and breaks very similar designs. Yeah, um, you know, the client will oftentimes come to us and say, "Oh, I need this to be thirty-six inches high, this cabinet, but I really want a modern look." And so now you have to struggle with trying to make those two things work for yeah. the uninitiated. Uh, like a a modern piece is going to need to feel much more low slung mm -hmm. and less rooted to the ground. So if you yeah, just draw so heavy. Yeah, 36 inch tall cabinet, it's it's going to look like a, a stock run in the mill thing. Mm -hmm. um, you got to play with the the size and the proportion of the doors and the openings yeah, and the, all these other the things. legs or toe, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and, you know, the more you do it, the more you can, you know, kind of quickly go to those things. But it's a great school, isn't it, to, mm -hmm. to ha be tasked with these things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you learn on it with every design. Yeah. It's like, ah, so that's how that happens, right? <laughs> right? You come across, you have those aha moments mm -hmm. like, oh, man, if I make the doors square or if I make them, you know, wider than they are, they, they gives me this. Yep. Uh, proportion. Can't stress that enough. For any of you out there that are um, interested in designing furniture or anything, proportion is is so foundational. Yeah. And, you know. It's vertical, horizontal, and depth. Mm -hmm. You know, there's you have oh, to look yeah. at it in three dimensions too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so again, we're talking about uh, arts and crafts furniture characteristics. A lack of ornamentation is also one. Um, simplicity and utilitarianism are key elements, uh, as is the avoidance of ornate flourishes. And we'll get into the things that they did use for ornamentation. Um, but they weren't into just tacking things on just mm -hmm. for the sake of having like a, a leaf. Right. Uh, Gustav Stickley says, Our first and leading purpose of building a cabinet, case, bed, or chair is that the design shall represent and not confuse the structural idea. In a word that our art shall not cancel our article. Nice. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Our art shall not cancel our article. So a chair should look like a chair. Yeah. <laughs> oh, look at what the... <laughs> you know, you'd think I was reading that, but <laughs> it simply stated, a chair should look like a chair. That's my next line. Um and a chest of drawers should look like a chest of drawers. Ornamentation, if present, should be integrated into material and joinery. Uh, more characteristics. Characteristics. 
honesty or truth in materials. Uh, I love this too. Domestic woods, quarter sawn oak, clear, stained, or fumed to highlight the wood's natural beauty is the signature material. Mm -hmm. uh, also emphasizing the natural qualities of the materials used was one of the most important elements of the arts and crafts aesthetic. Um, we love doing that all the time. Um, even if it's just like, uh, like with those oak um, side tables, the, the end grain showing, you know, contrasting against oh, yeah. the, the face grain of the quarter song, you know, just makes that dark, um, contrasting element. It is, there's so much to do just within the wood itself. Yeah. Uh, and of course, mortise and tenon joinery is, um, you know, well-known characteristic exposed joinery is a recurring theme and the furniture's structural lines should reveal its reason for existence. Um, this is another thing I love too, and we haven't really had a chance to do it. Natural leather yeah. or natural cloth upholstery. I, I mean, everybody who's been listening for the last year and a half knows one day <laughs> I will make my Morris chair, <laughs> get this nice comfy leather cushion upholstered. That's it. So let's uh, recap the birth of arts and crafts. British textile maker William Morris so disliked the result of the Industrial Revolution that he sparked an entire movement resisting it, writing The Art of the People in 1879. The book's message moved the arts and crafts movement forward. He wrote, art made by the people and for the people as a happiness to the maker and the user. Well um, he's kind of, I'm getting a little bit, um, not, not optimistic, but he, he, he kind of looks at things in a somewhat unrealistic way when he's looking back at the past. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and it's like, if we could just tool around the workshop and work at our own pace and charge whatever the hell we wanted. That'd be nice. <laughs> that's, that's William Morris's perfect world. <laughs> uh, his business, Morris, Marshall, Faulkner, and Company, founded in 1861, made handcrafted decorative items. And ironically, the company's products were too expensive for most of the people, in quotes, to purchase, according to Antiques 101 by Frank Farmer Loomis IV. Yeah, and what do you think? Yeah, and it, it makes it tough. Right. In 1865, many years before he published the aforementioned book, Morris introduced the first version of the recliner. Oh, yeah. It exhibited the lines and leather upholstery that would later be associated with mission furniture made in America and which was indeed inspired by the arts and crafts movement. This Morris chair with its ultra simple lines was introduced at a time when Rococo revival and other fancy Victorian styles were all the rage. Could you imagine that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a simple design. Yeah, it's a it's a stark contrast that comes into focus when looking at overall design trends and transitions of the era. Yeah, um, all the stuff that's popular, he comes out with the Morris chair and go, "Hey, look at this, everybody!" <laughs> the antithesis of Victorian yeah. furniture. Here's another good little tidbit. It's also ironic that the simplicity of the Morris chair led to its being mass-produced <laughs> in the way that its inventor so disliked. Nevertheless, the popularity of this comfortable style did bring the arts and crafts movement to the masses and inspired other craftsmen to follow his lead. In fact, Art Nouveau, uh, which is going to be the next uh, segment in another month, the aesthetic movement, 
and craftsman mission styling are all styles relating to the arts and crafts movement. Yeah, I mean, it is ironic, but at least the American arts and crafts movement, you know, the whole idea is that the designs were <clears throat> relatively simple enough to be made easily, which made them accessible. Mm -hmm. That was accessibility was like a huge highlight of the American arts and crafts movement. Yeah, like we have those Gustav Stickley um, reprint books. Yeah, he wanted people to make their own furniture. Yeah, wow, that was five pages. We just flew through that. Wow, we like the arts and crafts period. Yeah, um, yeah, because usually we go about four pages of notes per uh, per hour. Yeah, that felt like it was only about a half hour. Uh, yeah, we're thirty five minutes in. Yeah, so I let's uh, let's discuss. Okay. <laughs> the arts and crafts movement um you know what led to the arts and crafts movement and uh i guess you know how we relate to it yeah i mean well what started then is even worse now in terms yeah. of the industrialization of of furniture and cabinetry manufacturing um so, I mean, we're kind of in the same boat trying to fly in the face of of mass-produced cheap crap. Yeah, um, and you have to compound it with the sort of global reach of industry now. Yeah. Um, because you're taking far-off economies with, you know, much lower standards of living and pay scales and mm -hmm. things like that. It just, it still blows my mind that something can be made on the other side of the world and transported all the way over here and go through countless middlemen in that whole process that are all making a profit mm -hmm. and it still gets here and is resold so much cheaper than we can produce it. Yeah. For $199 at Home Depot, you know, that's, uh, it, it's unbelievable. Yeah, and materials aside, of course it's inferior materials too, mm -hmm. but anybody who does this type of work knows that the materials are cheap. The labor is expensive. Yeah. Rel you know, it's relative. Yeah. Right, right. Um, I, again, I'll go back to, I find it interesting that the, the English, um, it, was, it was almost more of a social movement for them. Yeah. And, I mean, it was in the U.S. too. Yeah, um, yeah. With, like, the Craftsman Farm and stuff, which is in New Jersey. Um, that's a trip we need to make. Yeah, I think it's still closed. Um, oh, that's right. We did check that out. Yeah, it got, got wrecked by that uh, tropical storm, Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was like a socialist movement, really. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because... We're so on board with that, yet we're, of course, capitalists because we're, you know, we're small businessmen. Right. It, it, it's, a, it's another thing that we have to balance, you know. Yeah, uh, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. They're, well, they, they shouldn't be. Right. Um, that's, I mean, we can have ideals that are, you know, doing things for the good of our client, the good of the planet, our own good. And they they don't need to be in conflict with one another. Yeah. Um, that is unfortunately a more modern view, you mm -hmm. know, where it's like um, the bottom line, so to speak, bottom line in parentheses is the, is the number one objective for many. Right. Yeah. The businesses. race to the bottom. And, yes. And it is. It is a race to the bottom. We know. Companies of all sizes that do that. Mm -hmm. It's not just, you know, the big um, uh, evil giants. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, we said we were going to use this, but if we use this, it's going to be, it's going to cost us a little bit less. The client will never know. Right. Right. All that, all the lying and the cheating that goes on in the construction industry. Mm -hmm. It's uh, really a, a shame. Um, 
When, <laughs> you ever have a conversation with somebody and, and tell them about these things and, and you could see sort of like the blood drain away from their face? Like oh, they, they wait, start what? thinking about all the times they've hired somebody and it's like, well, how do you trust somebody? How it's, you know, you just have to be fortunate enough to know good quality people. Right. Um, that's, that's really it. Mm -hmm. Like, <clears throat> you know, when we moved in, in, uh, 2002, we, the house needed to get painted and it needs to get painted again now, but that's now it's 20 years on. Mm -hmm. People told us that a good paint job would last about 10 years. And we hired this guy and he literally took a month to paint the house. Yeah. But. That paint job, for the most part, lasted 15 years. Wow. Um, and we were lucky. Because we hired, you know, the right guy who took his time, did it right. And he was just happy that we didn't pressure him to go faster. Right. You know, he gave us a price up front. And he's like, this is the price. And however long it takes me, it takes me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> some days he'd work half a day. Some days he'd work a day and a half. You know, that was his thing. Well, we were talking about it yesterday with the uh, designers that came by. Mm -hmm. There's three things. You, you can have it good, you can have it fast, or you can have it cheap. Right. <laughs> you never get of, all yeah. three. A lot of times you can get two. Yeah. Um, they say that with subwoofers, too. Mm -hmm. Small, low, and uh, loud are the three things. You know, you can... You can have it low and loud, but it won't be small, you know, that kind of. Right. Oh, man. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, getting into some of the guys that were. Yeah. Um, you know, these these are more people that are kind of our um, more recent, uh, you know, heroes is probably too strong a word, but the people we. Uh, admire their work and fashion ourselves after. Mm -hmm. um, do we know anybody else uh, doing this kind of stuff? Um, I mean, wh what about um, Wild Willie? Was he? Does he work in this uh, medium? Mm. He's a little bit more modern, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And Bliss is definitely uh, of more of an older style, more classic, right? Yeah, he's kind of like a repro guy. Mm -hmm. Viz is kind of like a, like that sort of what would you call it? like that tradition? You call it traditional? Yeah, you know the raised panel sort of clean look. He does yeah. a lot of work in that. Yeah, there, I mean, there's definitely some guy. I can't think of anybody off the top of my head, but there's definitely some guys I've seen on Instagram who specialize mm -hmm. in sort of the uh, um, craftsman style. Uh, what's his name? Chris Larson, I think is his name. Midnight Maker. Mm. He's uh, one of our patrons. He does a lot of cool craftsman style stuff. We were talking about him the other day. The guy who kind of, he probably straddles the line between commerce and handcraft. Thomas Moser. Yeah. Better than anybody in the world. Mm -hmm. um, I remember working down on, um, I used to work on 6th and Spring when I was uh, working in the city. And just like a block over on Varick, he has a showroom. And I used to take off on lunch. And now I'm doing um, project management for a general contractor. And I've yet to do any of these things by myself like I'm doing now. But I used to just stare in the window like like probably like a puppy in a butcher shop window. Just I was even afraid to go in, you know. I just walked through there every day at lunchtime and look at all the stuff they were doing. Um yeah, I like the Moser stuff. And the 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 quality and the price are just unbeatable. Yeah, I mean, I haven't put my hands on any Moser stuff, but from what I've seen, I mean, it's a real shop with real people making mm -hmm. the furniture. It's, you know, they have, there's some automation, you know, they have big machines and stuff, yeah. but, you know, the price for what you're getting um, is good. One thing I saw 
that they use is that um, it's like what do you call the the like the glue microwave thing? Yeah, you, you ever see that? Uh, yeah. Um, like a curing. Uh, yeah, where you you glue something up and you put it in there and it like instantly mm -hmm. is, is set, sort of like what we do with the vesting finish. Yep. Yeah, that's I, cool. Yeah, I wonder if that's UV. I wonder what that is. That uh, they have heat activated yeah. glues. It might, might be heat. I don't know. Um, he'd be an interesting person to talk to. Yeah, you know, learn about how he started. What were his um, goals? If did he plan on doing this? Yeah, like becoming, you know, a. a a big a business, you know, a shop yeah. where you have like a line of furniture. Mm -hmm. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, we're gonna get him on the horn. See if we can uh, talk to him. Yeah, um, I'm. I'm not sure if I heard this or if I'm imagining that you can go on a a shop tour or a factory tour if they have them. I think so. I know you can like actually go there and build something. Um, like it's like a class, I guess, almost like where you can build your own chair or whatever. Ah, yeah. That's pretty interesting too. Yeah. I ain't paying for that shit. No, no. If, uh, if I got the money, I'm going to buy it. Yeah. If I got to work for it, I'm <laughs> just pay full price. I'll let somebody else make it. In that case, just make it in the shop. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, pay ourselves. Right. So uh, what, what are the big takeaways from episode one? Uh, machines are, is bad. <laughs> Machine bad. <laughs> yeah, man good. Man good. A <laughs> little bit of idealized uh, looking back at the Middle Ages for sure. Yeah. Um, and the guilds and all that stuff. Because as we know, those people, those young people were sort of like little indentured servants. Mm-hmm. Uh, kids were sold off basically to yeah. a craftsperson mm -hmm. and lived in the in the shop and um, worked off their training for like you know ten years, right? Yeah, maybe more. Right, right. And when you quote unquote graduated, you were lucky to come away with some tools and uh, you know an outfit. Yeah. Yeah, remember that from the early American yeah. period. Um, so I would say that there's a little bit of looking back with rose-colored glasses. Um, yeah. Which is easy to do. I mean, they taught mm -hmm. us that when we were in in school studying history. You know, be careful about looking back and, uh, you know, putting our preconceptions and our filters on that that time period. Yeah, yeah, I mean... It's like, you know, people want, they're like, you know, we got to get back to a time when things were good here. <laughs> it's like, wow. Well, yeah. Was it really as good as you're, you're sort of misremembering? I know. Yes, it was better in some ways, but. Yeah. Don't uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right, right. I, I, I mean, back when I was in my teen years, I would say like my teen, the, the years that I got to live as a teenager in my young twenties were in so many ways better than the kids have it today where, um, there was more independence. There weren't so many things to be afraid of. Um, you could have a job delivering pizza and rent an apartment. You know, there, there were these types of things where, I, I feel bad that kids can't do those things and gain their independence the the way it was available back then. Yeah. Um, so there were definitely um, some better times there. And then, of course, you look at the, the happy days kind of time period, the 50s. Mm -hmm. That was supposedly the the best of the best. For some people. Yeah, that's right. Of course, you had to look the right way. Right. You know, that's a great point. Um, I mean, it's always good times if you have uh, the the means. Right, yeah. And uh, you're part of the right social group mm -hmm. and all that other stuff. Yeah, medieval time was great for the king. 
Everybody else was, you know, dying of the plague and toiling, you know, uh, carving out a church for the king. Right. And you were worried if your crop was going to come in and then the king's uh, men came by and took, you know. 90% of it. Yeah. However many bushels of wheat you grew and left you with whatever. Mm -hmm. So uh, I I took away like the, the great fair, the great exposition Exhibition. Exhibition. What did I say? Ex- Exposition. Exposition. The great, I don't even think that's a word. Yeah. The great exhibition. That's like a where people are being exposed in exposition. Yeah. Isn't that like a witch trial? <laughs> I got witches in my family. That's right. The great exhibition really had almost an adverse effect on on the industries that they were trying to promote. Well, yeah. But it was rejected by some. Yeah. I think the majority of people were all about it's that you know, it's the yeah. same as now. Yeah. You go to KBIS, the kitchen and bath industry show, whatever the hell it stands for, and we walk around and we see like, you know, cabinets made in the far east and there's people there drooling over them mm-hmm. and we're like, what is this like junky, you know, look at the cabinet side. It's five A thick. It's made out of chipboard it's you know so you always have these mouth breathers who are standing back and they love it there's always this small group of people saying what is this right they're looking at the price like i can get this for how much yeah rta you can get a flat pack ship to <laughs> i was the house. just about to say that flat pack too yeah, oh we so we sh- we save on the shipping and they're in stock yeah 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 because they they never stop producing that stuff do yeah. they Look at the new cutlery inserts that they have. Mm-mm. Wow. Boy, howdy. So that's, uh, we got the great exhibition. exhibition. Is that going to be in one of my new words? Could be. Jacobean. Exhibition. Rectilinear. Rectilinear. It came up in this episode. Mm-hmm. Well, it's bound to. Yeah. Speaking of rectilinear, you know where I had to go today. <laughs> I save that for Patreons. <laughs> Speaking of which, you want to support the podcast, head over to our Patreon and uh, show some love. Yeah, show us some love. Um, head over to Bits and Bits. Get yourself some router bits. Save 15%. <clears throat> help support the podcast. Show Bits and Bits that it's actually worth their time to be a sponsor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know you need some router bits because you probably got some crap Yonico or like Freud yeah. in your drawer. Get yourself some real router bits, not that crap. Not those blue bits. Yeah, like a, you got a Bosch from Home Depot or, uh, God forbid, you have like a Ryobi router bit set. Yeah, th- those things get through half of a cut and then they're done. Yeah. It's it's really like, it is a waste of money. Yeah, stop sanding the burn marks off your, uh, your edges and just get a, <clears throat> a nice white side router bit. Uh, get yourself some vesting finish. That'll help support the podcast as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We're lucky we finally got some. Yeah. We were waiting. We they were are out. back in stock, apparently. Uh, great. Um, so, yeah. If you have any questions about the vesting, you can always reach out to us. And uh, leave a review on the podcast. Yeah. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Well, we will see you next week. We're going to get into the second episode of The Arts and Crafts where we're talking about some notable figures. All right. Take care, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Ah!